Hello, Luxury Stance listeners. I'm Scott Kerr, and I'm here with my podcast partner in crime, Mickey Alam Khan. Hi, Mickey. How are you doing? Hi, Scott. Glad to be back. Totally excited. I can't believe it's been a month. It seems like it was yesterday. I know. Uh, you know as you grow older, you ignore time. <laughs> you know, I think we should really pat ourselves on the back, Mickey. On our podcast last month, we both correctly predicted LVMH would report strong fourth quarter revenue and profits and help ease luxury sector slowdown concerns. And shortly after that, Hermes reported that fourth quarter sales grew 13%. You know, the company's 2023 results reinforced the trend that groups with more upscale positioning in the sector, including Brunello Cuccinelli and LVMH, are achieving a soft landing with resilient growth compared with groups that have a more aspirational clientele, such as Burberry and Herring, which have struggled. And I think this is a reassuring signal for luxury, and I'm optimistic that the market will continue to see reviving momentum of the luxury consumer, particularly among the wealthy. Do you agree? I totally agree with your assessment, Scott. And the reason for that is that this market is resilient and is a long-term play. So we've always got to keep that in mind with luxury. You'll have a few dips here and there, but the goal of people who own these brands is to make sure that they continue to be objects of desire or, uh, you know, uh, services that people want to have for the next decade and beyond. So everything they do is geared to long-term thinking. And truth be told, yes, they'll take, uh, you know, short-term hits for certain brands simply because it's an issue with the product and not the fact that the overall luxury business is suffering any issues. Yeah, you've got geopolitical issues in the background and you've got, uh, you know, um, a few concerns about inflation. But deep down, when you look at it, most luxury brands uh, plan years ahead. And if you look at the stock market, I mean, we are hitting record highs everywhere. Yeah. So I'm very confident. And speaking of more upscale positioning, I really enjoyed the webinar you held last week. You had yes from Fraser Yachts, VistaJet, and McLaren to talk about how their brands and their customers, you know, and how they're growing their business. The super yacht, private jet, luxury car business have boomed in the last few years post-pandemic as they became more exclusive modes of transport among the ranks of the super rich. The main theme that I took away from this as, you know, regarding today's ultra high net worth customer whether it's private jet, super yacht, or supercar, high personalization and attention to detail are table stakes for keeping them engaged and loyal. You need to actually take it up many more notches, take it up a step further. What was your takeaways from this? Again, I have to be on the same page because what I heard loud and clear was the fact that all three companies, uh, Fraser Yards, Vista, and McLaren pointed to one thing, the emphasis on personalization and customization to the nth degree. When you're at that level of affluence, you want to feel special and the products you buy have to be very special. And you don't want to have the same product as your peers. At the same time, you want the peer recognition, but you want to be distinct in the objects uh, you use or the services you employ. So I, I feel like the overall uh, emphasis was on personalization and customization, along with a uh, high focus on quality. I think most luxury brands forget this one word. You know, they they rely so heavily on their branding and on everything else. They forget at the end of the day, when you buy a luxury product, 
It's meant to last a very long time. It's supposed to be made of the best materials available, and it should have a long shelf life. So when you look at all these luxury brands at that level of uh, you know, uh, wealth, you're looking at a private jet that, you know, basically has great performance mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, long shelf life. You look at McLaren cars, great resale value, uh, beautiful designs. And then you look at super yachts and yachts. I don't even need to comment on that. You know, I mean, that is at the absolute upper echelon of luxury. So you're absolutely right. If I had to rank it, it'd be customization and personalization, uh, quality uh, and an emphasis on experience. That is another thing that came out loud and clear. Right. That you have to make this 0.001% feel very special. They lead stressed lives, whether you like it or not. They're very busy making money. So when they're not making money, they want to basically let off steam and they don't want any friction in that process. So they want to feel really good for the hard work they put in for those eight to 12 hours at work and the remaining 12 hours, they want to make sure those experiences compensate. And when I think about the investments that these ultra affluent consumers are making in private jets, yachts, or supercars, I think about the price of living the good life these days. I was reading an article in Forbes about how luxury is getting more expensive. Forbes has tracked the luxury spending and behaviors. They have this cost of living extremely well index. I mean, just saying it is, is, is rolls off, doesn't roll off your tongue, but I think they call it the Cluey Index or something like that. Forbes has calculated the cost of a billionaire's lifestyle for the last 40 years. This past year in 2023, the Cluey is up 4.9%, which is a little less than the average annual gain of 5.1% over the past four decades, but more than 3.2% rise in the U.S. Consumer Price Index in the past year. We're talking about everything from thoroughbred horses, Steinway pianos to caviar and opera tickets. It's become much more expensive to live like a billionaire. Yes, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the last 10 or 12 years where the demand increased dramatically, but the supply couldn't match. You have pressure on raw materials, uh, pressure on craftsmen. You don't have enough artisans to produce these products. Uh, you have a bigger universe of wealthy individuals demanding more uh, high-end services and products. And then you also have uh, overall inflation, right? Cost of wages has gone up. So it has a trickle-down effect. And the final thing is what luxury brands do themselves. And this is a strategy pursued by LVMH very aggressively, Chanel, uh, Hermes, to some extent, and of course, Caring. And what they do is they try to add two to three increases a year in certain key categories where they're dominant. Uh, leather goods is a very good example. They did that in during the pandemic in China. And, you know, I remember uh, in one year, Chanel had three price increases for certain handbags. Right. And Louis Vuitton did the same. And at some point, there's going to be a backlash. But that's the way they post great numbers is not just uh, you know, tapping the aspirational demand, but also raising prices organically to, uh, you know, kind of fatten their bottom line there. I'll give you one more example. When you look at the the toys of the ultra-rich, right, and you look at their playgrounds, um, the I was reading about the uh, Amir of um, Abu Dhabi. You know, he's also the president mm -hmm. of the UAE. Yeah. And 
I believe he has a half billion dollar yacht. Uh, now, the yardstick with uh, yachts and super yachts is that the annual maintenance is typically 10% of what the yacht costs. I read that it costs the ruler $65 million a year just to keep that yacht afloat with crew and food and you know fuel and all the kind of stuff. You're looking at people who have tens of billions of dollars for that for them, this is chump change. But then when you look at just the regular Joe billionaires, right? Even their lifestyles, you know, it's not just all realized wealth. It's still locked up in, in um, you know, equities and art and all that. So even they are sometimes prudent in the way they make purchases. But for them, it's not a question of a want, it's a need. So their math, when they're, purchasing these products and services is completely different from the way the rest of the world operates. That form index I was telling you about, I was, I was sort of looking down that list and I lasered in on the ultra luxury travel. And that's kind of what we want to talk about today is it said that on average, ultra luxury travel is up 2.2% year over year. As an example, Forbes showed the price for the Central Park suite at the Carlisle here in New York is like $7,764 a night, up 4.2% versus the previous year. So, and despite prices going up at ultra-luxury hotels and resorts, luxury hospitality is booming. Well-heeled travelers have been returning to the road. Five-star ultra-luxury hotel brands like the Four Seasons, Mandarin Oriental, and Amman are reaping the benefits. Cruise lines like Silver Sea and Crystal and tour operators like Abercrombie and Kent and Lindblad Expeditions are busier than ever chasing this rarefied audience. I think we're seeing a new tier of luxury hospitality that's jumped out from the broader and commoditized luxury category into a sphere of its own. Brands like Amman and Bulgari hotels charging nightly rates that are ranging from 3,000 to 40,000 euros are laser focused on this very upper echelon of global wealth and the level of competition it seems is getting really fierce. It's become this arms race for who can deliver the extraordinary. And what I mean by extraordinary, I mean true luxury hospitality these days comes down to who best lives and breathes a quality of service culture. It's about delivering intangible things and how they make guests actually feel. And for many luxury guests, it's not about the glitz, but compounds effect of many leveled up human interactions with the staff during the course of a stay that will stick with you forever. Do you feel there is a whole new set of experience-driven expectations from luxury travelers? Uh, Scott, you couldn't have analyzed it better because you referenced the Carlisle Hotel in New York. Um, you know, I live a few blocks up, and I remember I was invited to the reopening of the hotel after the pandemic, mm -hmm. and they did a root and branch makeover uh, from the menus, restaurants, and the room designs. And the inauguration party was held at the presidential suite right on top. And, you know, it has a bird's eye view of, uh, you know, the park and Central Park and that part of Manhattan. It was yep. $30,000 a night. And they had to adjust. Uh, they had to tweak the date of the launch because the rooms were booked. That whole suite was booked for days on end. So it just tells you that you know there is the demand for those products and services. I'll give you another example of hospitality. We often don't think about this, but um, many years ago, I was uh, in uh, 
a hospital here on the Upper East Side uh, for a procedure. And I remember, uh, you know, talking to some of the staff there and I said, what's going on? Because it was completely deserted. They said, you're one of the last surgeries in because the King of Saudi Arabia is checking in tomorrow and we've had to relocate or discharge many of the uh, patients and move them to different wards. Wow. Um, he has commanded the entire uh, kitchen. So that whole floor with the kitchen was given over to the Saudis. Uh, and he took about three floors for himself and for his family and staff. And that's the kind of level of service that even these hotel, I mean, these hospitals offer very, very affluent, uh, you know, potentials or, you know, uh, people. And, you know, we don't think of it, but in an every category, you have that uh, very, very upper crust that demands experiences that you can't find anywhere else. And I see that uh, across hotels, but I also see uh, growth in membership clubs now, right? Mm -hmm. You go to Akan in New York, they've got their club. And I think the admission fee was 250 grand, uh, $250,000. And then uh, basically uh, you get access to their restaurants and then you get obviously discounts at all of my hotels. I had, I was invited by one of my clients the other day to lunch um, at the GM building here in New York. And there's a club that opened a year ago called Coco's at Colette. And it's on the 37th floor of this building and it is Kitty Corner from Central Park. I go up there and it's the most exquisite service you'd expect. I mean, everyone in crisp suits, great uniforms, very courteous and drop dead gorgeous views of Central Park. Every single window had a view. And the service was exquisite. You sat at the bar and you got to see the city. What's the price of membership? $350,000 and annual fees, 36,000, right? And then I saw people streaming in. Now, obviously I was coming from work, so I was in my suit. And what do I see people? All these super affluent millionaires and billionaires coming in, completely dressed down in very comfortable clothes. And I felt, oh my God, it's such a sea change, you know? I'm the one who's dressed formally like the star. Right. But these guys were absolutely comfortable and all of them were waiting for their guests and all. And while they were waiting, they're scrolling on the phone, doing things like you and I would do, right? But it was that whole effort of making them feel special and, you know, giving them an experience that only 400 people can afford, limited to, and they have offices there too. You can rent offices to only 400 people. Right. So you're looking at that level of customization. They do the same thing with first class cabins now. So there you talk about an arms race. That's what's going on in commercial. Forget private jets where you can basically design everything. If you talk of charters, there's only a limit. You can't, you know, alter the bones of the aircraft or do, you know, you can customize. You can with some of the furnishings. But when you look at commercial first class, uh, there's a arms race between Singapore Airlines, Emirates, Etihad to service not just transatlantic routes, but the routes to Asia connecting, you know, New York, London, Asia, Sydney. And the 
Etihad suite, the first class suite, has to be seen to be believed. It's three rooms. There's a bathroom and you can shower for 10 minutes. In the Emirates uh, first class, you can shower for five minutes. So that's the selling point now. Your shower runs five minutes longer. And, and then Singapore Airlines change their decor and they're competing for that same customer. And again, the food, uh, they're serving Dom Perignon, they're serving um, you know, uh, the best champagnes, the best wines, caviar, you name it. And the food is exquisite. The service is exquisite. The toiletry is exquisite. You get your own stewards. That is what's happening with the 0.001%. They just right. want to be extra, extra special. I once heard a story about uh, Kim Jones, who is a Dior now. He was the former men's artistic director at Louis Vuitton. And his experience at Amon Tokyo after the Paris fashion shows, it was like 4 a.m. And he was jet lagged and famished. And despite Amon's kitchen serving a full menu 24 hours a day, there was nothing on the menu that looked good to him. So the staff offered to run out to the fish market to ensure the freshest sushi and sashimi. So an hour later, Jones was feasting on this memorable piece of tuna. <laughs> and the best way to describe that level of hospitality to me is they, is called unreasonable hospitality. And, and that's something that I coined. It's coined by Will Gadara, the former co-owner of legendary New York City restaurant, 11 Madison Park. That's actually the title of his book that came out a couple of years ago. And he defines unreasonable hospitality is seeking out ways to create extraordinary experiences and giving people more than they could ever possibly expect. So how can these luxury hotels and resorts create a culture of creativity, deliver this idea of unreasonable hospitality that gives them a distinctive edge? To have a frontline team that is obsessed with how they make their guests feel beyond just the standard operating procedure. There's an old phrase uh, that's not used much, but it it holds very true when you're talking about this particular market. Your wish is my command. <laughs> and that's what it is. Your wish is my command. And that is the underlying philosophy when you're serving the ultra high net worth. You see, they're not looking for cookie cutter experiences. They can get that anywhere else, right? Uh, when Kim Jones is fussy about the food, yes, he can throw a fit because he can afford to do that, right? <laughs> and and that's what uh, the ultra-rich do because they can, as Bill Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton once said famously, because I can, right? Yeah. So the fact is that when you're dealing with the clientele that is so specific, Hotels and hospitality groups already anticipate that behavior. They already anticipate the situations ahead of time. They know that, all right, if this client is not going to be happy with this type of cuisine, they've got alternatives already planned. If the client is not going to be happy with these sorts of rides, they've already got another plan. If they're not happy with the beds or the pillows or you name it, they're willing to change the whole decor of the room. So when you go to check in at the Claridge's a hotel in London and, uh, you know, they have long term guests flying in, say, from the Middle East, they know those guests like certain furniture and they like a different layout. So guess what happens a day or so ahead of time? They can't make these changes way ahead of time because those rooms are always booked. So it's a very, very finessed operation. 
They've got exactly two to three hours to turn around an entire suite or entire floor, and they completely change the decor to suit the whims and fancies of the occupant who's flying in because that is what that person has desired in years past. So it looks completely tailored to that one particular individual. They change the entire look and feel of the entire floor. So how you could see? you train? Yeah, how could you train your staff? You have to have a certain type of staff staff members that instinctively know how to do this and think and think like that. It's not that difficult to train these types of staff. It's very easy if you look at it. If you have, you know, uh, most of these um, hospitality groups have schools. Um, the Ritz Carlton has its own internal academy, right? The Ritz Carlton Leadership Center. They also train. Uh, executives from other corporate sectors. So all of them have these uh, internal training programs. They also work with best-in-class training programs outside the organization. At the end of the day, you've got to understand the motivation of people. You know, what is it that they want? When they, when they you know, check in, they're escaping. When you escape, what is it that you want? You don't want what you have at home, Right. So that's what they're anticipating. So they focus on the beds, they focus on uh, you know, furniture, they focus on uh, service, they focus on the food, the ambiance, the views, everything. So it's not that difficult. The thing is that you've got to find the right individuals who will have that service mentality, who understand what it is, that they're not basically serving a customer, they're delivering quality. They are the luxury product. When you are in hospitality, your staff is the luxury product. And I'm not buying uh, a room. I'm buying sleep. I'm buying access to the very best quality staff who can make my dreams come true and make my family happy for that particular time. So it's very easy to train. The challenge you face is that depending on your locale, you may not get the talent who wants to spend that kind of time and effort because training like this and working with this type of customer takes many years. It's like uh, flying first class. Typically, the flight attendants who serve the first class cabins or business class are the ones who have way more experience than people uh, who are serving economy class passengers, right? The same thing applies to stewards on uh, super yachts. The ones who actually, the closer you are to the grand stateroom, the more experience you have and the more knowledge you have in how to appeal to the sensibilities of the super rich. So all they have to do is make sure that they have proper programs. They look at like-minded organizations who are dealing with the ultra, ultra high network. And I'd always recommend if you're a hospitality group to partner with other luxury sectors uh, like jets, uh, yachts, uh, jewelry, art that's the kind of universe where you know that all right what can i borrow from that particular world like when you're dealing with you know art dealers there's the utmost discretion right so that's another thing so all these people who work for this particular type of customer base they're literally at the top end of the luxury business i think there's also an element of creativity that the staff have to have you know this whole element of surprise and delight give them things and do things for them that they didn't expect. Yes. And I think 
if you look at, I'm coming back to the Ritz Carlton, I mean, the Amman people also, I'm sure, have the same philosophy, so to St. Regis, so do the people, the Hilton group, when they were talking to the Waldorf Astoria guys, and, you know, depending on, you know, ACOR and all these people. Um, I know that some of them have discretionary budgets. They don't even have to ask their supervisor, they're all right, uh, should I, you know, uh, spend this kind of money? You know, right. they get a few thousand dollars and they can make the decision on the spot to serve that customer. If that customer says, you know what, I want sushi and that sushi needs to be flown in from two hours away. And guess what? It'll be done. If that person has discretion and the discretionary budget. So you're talking about empowering the people who are actually intersecting with the customer to make decisions without wasting any time because at that level of service time is of the essence that's what's very important and you have to make very quick decisions if the customer says that that bed is no good guess what they have to make sure that they have other spare mattresses in the facility that can be replaced within 10 minutes because if that customer is complaining that midnight you should be able to swap the beds within 10 minutes right and it has to be done with surgical precision. You know, one of the things um, all these groups do is they have training programs. They get people from different properties to come together to share examples and ideas, right? So what may necessarily resonate in Latin America may not work in Asia because of culture. So that's another component that is very important to understand the local culture. You may have a guest coming from the Middle East going to... Uh, Latin America are going to North America, and they do not want to see uh, men in the corridors, right? So that is a particular requirement when the Saudi royal family of some of the Emiratis come to London and check in hotels uh, like the Claridge's. Uh, the staff that serve the female floors are all women. And so you have to make sure that you have women who have the same knowledge an understanding of that customer base as their male counterparts. And you're making all these female clients happy. They block off the exits. So no one can basically enter the floor where all the Saudi Arab women are staying for the duration of the stay. So even the security has to be women. You see? Yeah. So that that level of service is not obvious to all of us who don't know what's going on behind, you know, the the bricks facade or the stone facade so what else do the one percenter travelers want out of tourism i would imagine that like everybody the ultra high net worth market wants unique immersive experiences but given their financial resources the sky's the limit when it comes to the possibilities for this group money buys freedom and feasibility and exclusive access they want to do things that no one else has done before and will never do again Everything is possible. Everything is personal. If it doesn't exist, then create it. If it hasn't been done, you know, it's time someone did it. What they want is godlike experiences. That's what it boils down to. They, they want to be very close to what it's like to be in heaven. And that's what they think. <laughs> without well, dying, right. Without dying. <laughs> the, the rich hate dying. You know, there's a... Yeah, there's it a, sucks. There's a funeral home uh, close to where I live, and it's on the Upper East Side, and it's a very prestigious funeral home, and there's always a wait list. And the running joke is that uh, the, the rich die to go there, 
So <laughs> they're dying to get in. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so coming back to the question, I think when you're at that level of wealth, what you're looking for is a combination of pleasure, leisure, and most of all, is peace of mind. You see, that is what you're trying to buy. Mm -hmm. It's eliminating friction from every single thing, whether you're out sailing, uh, you're out uh, exploring cultural sites, or you're on the property uh, with immersive experiences, you're looking for uh, uh, to create memories. And that's what it is. At the end of the day, they want to create great memories of a wonderful time. The Ritz-Carlton had a campaign many years ago, Take Us With You. Right. And that came the campaign, if you remember, right? Yes, I do. And the Four Seasons had something similar to And all of these groups have worked extra hard to make sure that when the guest steps on the property, they're completely at ease. The very smart groups, they start that process way before the guest enters the property. That's when you basically make sure that your customer, before they come into your property, is already in your state of mind, whatever the state of mind is, right? So, um, you know, at this point of time, if it's, it's the winter here in our hemisphere and it's summer in, uh, you know, uh, I think it's summer in Brazil right now, right? Uh, yeah. It's uh, And then you look at uh, Australia, right? So when people are at that level of wealth, they're avoiding the cold. They go from warm weather to warm weather to warm weather. And you look at this. In the old days, you had a social calendar, right? Look at where they own homes. So it's it's a similar parallel today. Like in the winter, you have people who go to Palm Beach in the United States, or you they go to Palm Springs uh, in California. Uh, in uh, And then if you're fond of skiing, then obviously you go to Vail, or you go to, you know, uh, Vermont and, you know, wherever. And then, you know, if you're on... Europe, obviously, Stad and St. Moritz and all those places there. But where are they going if they want uh, to just have fun? They go to the Caribbean. So I come back to the fact is when you're at that level of wealth, you're trying to defy the rules of life, the rules of engagement by crafting your own rules. It is your rules. It is your life. And you're bending. You're trying to bend time to you and your requirements. So you're looking at, you know, and it's not necessary that it's only the Forbes 400 that have that attitude, right? If you look at Warren Buffett, the guy is one of the top 10 billionaires in the world. Uh, he still lives in the house he bought in 1957. He's a different generation. You look at Jeff Bezos, um, second richest person on earth, or maybe third richest person on earth, because, you know, it always fluctuates between Bernard Arnault and... Right. On Musk and um, and Jeff Bezos, and Jeff Bezos, after he got divorced, he went almost like through a, I don't know if it's a midlife crisis or a midlife opportunity. <laughs> he got a new girlfriend. He muscled up, wearing tight t-shirts. So he went from the very down to earth guy to basically investing in space, uh, investing in all these other ventures, buying homes in Washington D.C., Miami. Uh, you know, in other places, showing up in all the social functions uh, is a Hollywood fixture and something just turned. So when Jeff Bezos walks into a place, the place adapts to him. He doesn't adapt to the place. 
And that's what billionaires and people at that level of wealth expect. They expect the minute they walk into that environment, the environment adapts to them and not yeah. them to that environment. So, you know, while we're talking about luxury hospitality, it seems the boundaries between high-end fashion and luxury hospitality continue fading, giving rise to this whole new era of immersive experiences. We know already that luxury fashion houses have been dabbling in hospitality for decades with labels like Versace, Armani, Bulgari, Fendi, Gucci, and Louis Vuitton bringing restaurants and hotels into their orbit and offering luxury consumers a deeper, more intimate experience of their favorite brands. But now, it's becoming very apparent, is the emergence of a new group of ultra-luxury hotel players. They're thinking beyond traditional concepts of hospitality. These hotels are nurturing links with established luxury fashion houses that cater to an audience of high net worth clientele, really to strengthen their luxury brand status. And I was looking at this, you know, here's some examples of extraordinary partnerships that epitomize this burgeoning trend. So Fendi set up a beach club at a luxury resort in Spain. Um, you know, Belmont Hotel in Sicily teamed up with Dior for a wellness experience. Palazzo Avino on the Amalfi Coast partnered with Valentino on a branded takeover of the hotels club. This is not your parents' hotel gift shop anymore, Mickey. This seems like really smart business move for both sides. Scott, again, you couldn't be uh, more, uh, you know, right on the money. Um, what we have to realize with what's going on with luxury brands is they're turning themselves into lifestyle brands. So they're not just happy being purveyors of leather goods and fashion. They want to own everything around that customer. Mm -hmm. So you look at, you know, Laura Piana. Laura Piana was very well known for their textiles, still is very well known for their cashmere, right? And what do they do? They were a wholesaler at one point. Then they turned retail and they started selling direct to customers. They had their own monobrand stores. They were all obviously distributed in wholesale too. And then, uh, you know, LVMH bought them, at least bought a majority stake. And before you know it, they start collaborating with other brands in the LVMH portfolio. And you're slowly seeing an expansion into other categories. So now you see Laura Piana has its own handbags. And obviously, it's had a presence in shoes for a while. But now handbags has become an important category for that too, right? And I won't be surprised down the road if you have fabulous Lorupiana hotels with the same muted colors and the same cashmere philosophy. They already uh, outfit uh, many of the hospitality groups, uh, furniture and upholstery, right? Yep. Uh, that fabric is used across the board. Why can't they own that? Why can't you have Lorupiana Milan? Why can't you have Laura Piana, you know, New York? Now, they're all looking at that. The risk to that philosophy is that you stand for nothing. You see, in the customer's mind, if you spread yourself thin, you know, you are known for cashmere, but now you're known for everything. So you, right. you leave that little slot open to a competitor who specializes only in that. So that's the risk you run of turning yourself into a lifestyle brand. But it's enormously alluring to all these luxury brands most of the big groups are, are listed on the stock markets. They have to deliver for their owners and they're under tremendous pressure to post earnings uh, that you know are vast improvements over the previous quarters. So I suspect this move into lifestyle is driven more by financial consideration than, than mere 
trying to merely trying to improve the customer's life by you know enveloping the customer in everything that is that brand's philosophy and but on the other hand i look at this as also a very smart move when you look at hotels right if you partner with a certain brand you're basically welcoming that customer base into your hotel so when you're looking at the bulgari hotel the bulgari name was licensed to marriott and marriott runs the hotels now again Merit is managing the hotels, but they do a deal with a local developer in that city, and the developer owns the property. Marriott manages it, and Bulgari gets a licensing fee, just like Marriott gets a management fee, right? But guess what happens is Bulgari is very, very closely invested in maintaining the standards of the property because they're saying that, all right, we are tapping the same customer who buys our high-end jewelry to basically also stay there, and we expect a certain uh, kind of... Um, brand seamlessness across the board. So that is going to drive luxury down the road. You're going to see a lot of collaborations and alliances across industry sectors and hospitality uh, is basically very well suited. They do deals with automakers. Uh, Rolls Royce and Bentley cars are customized to, you know, various groups such as the Peninsula Hotel. Uh, You know, they're, they're liveried in the same corporate colors and they're green, forest green. So that tradition has been going on for many years. It's just now accelerated because everyone, unfortunately, in the luxury business, they love jumping on a bandwagon. And that is what's happening there. Down the road, there is a serious threat of brand erosion if this continues unabated. And that's the reason why brands such as Hermes are a little more circumspect by spreading themselves too thin. You haven't seen an Hermes hotel, have you? No, and you won't. You won't. There's a reason for that. You want to make sure that you're special. Now, if you're going to see yourself in a Louis Vuitton hotel wearing Louis Vuitton shoes, uh, you know, carrying a Louis Vuitton bag, and then basically, you know, going to a Louis Vuitton restaurant, you have you're inviting far too many people into your universe. That is not what the 0.001% want. They don't like crowds. They don't want too many people in the room. And so you have to you have a balancing act. Like when you look at the LVMH portfolio of 75 brands, which is literally at the top, 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 who is the richest customer or the most affluent, well-heeled customer out of all those 75 brands. And you just analyze and say, or where are they, where are they avoiding most brand dilution? And you know, that's, that's the brand that they're worried about, that they don't want to destroy that brand long-term. Well, Mickey, uh, it's time for me to head off to my Thai breath and body therapy. (laughs) That wraps up the February episode of Luxury Stance. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Mickey, it's always a pleasure talking shop with you. I look forward to uh, our March episode. Wonderful, Scott. I wish you the very best as you have your, um, you know, very, very rare 0.0.1% experience in your next uh, move. It's always a pleasure talking to you.